The Institutes of Biblical Law, Volume 1, by R.J. Rushduni. Narrated by Jeremy Walker. Produced with permission by the Chalcedon Foundation. The First Commandment. 1. The First Commandment and the Shema Israel. The prologue to the Ten Commandments introduces not only the law as a whole, but leads directly to the First Commandment. Quote, and God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Unquote. Exodus 20, 1 through 3. In this declaration, God identifies himself first as the Lord, the self-existent and absolute one. Second, he reminds Israel that he is their savior, and that their relationship to him, quote, thy God, unquote, is therefore one of grace. God chose Israel, not Israel God. Third, the law is given to the people of grace. All men are already judged, fallen, and lost. All men are under the wrath of the law, a fact which the quaking mountain and the fact of death for unhallowed approach underscored. Exodus 19, 16-25 the law is given to the people saved by grace as their way of grace, to set forth the privilege and blessing of the covenant. Fourth, it follows then that the first response to grace, as well as the first principle of the law, is this, quote, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, unquote. In analyzing this commandment, we must examine the implications of it cited by Moses, quote, Now these are the commandments, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that you might do them in the land whether you go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy sons and thy sons' sons, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee, in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Unquote. Deuteronomy 6, 1-3 First, the reason for the giving of these commandments is to awaken the fear of God, and that fear might promote obedience. Because God is God, the absolute Lord and lawgiver, fear of God is the essence of sanity and common sense. To depart from a fear of God is to lack any sense of reality. Second, quote, the maintenance of the fear of God would bring prosperity and increase of the nation promised to the fathers. The increase of the nation had been promised to the patriarchs from the very first. Unquote. Genesis 12, 1, Leviticus 26, 9. It is therefore necessary to maintain this fear and obedience from generation to generation. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, we come to a central and basic declaration of the first principle of law. Quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and thou shalt be as frontlets between thine eyes and thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. Unquote. 
The first two verses, 6, 4, and 5, are the Shema Israel, recited as the morning and evening prayer of Israel and, quote, considered by the rabbis to contain the principles of the Decalogue, unquote. The second portion of the Shema, verse 5, is echoed in Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13, quote, And now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, to keep for thy good the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Unquote. Deuteronomy 6.5 is cited by Christ as, quote, the first and great commandment, unquote. Matthew 22.37, Mark 12.30, Luke 10.27, i.e. as the essential and basic principle of the law. The premise of the commandment is, however, Deuteronomy 6.4, quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, unquote. The Christian affirmation of this is the declaration, quote, We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, unquote. It is the faith in the unity of the Godhead as opposed to the belief in, quote, God's many and Lord's many, unquote. The consequences for law of this fact are total, it means one God, one law. The premise of polytheism is that we live in a multiverse, not a universe, that a variety of law orders and hence lords exist, and that man cannot therefore be under one law except by virtue of imperialism. Modern legal positivism denies the existence of any absolute. It is hostile because of its relativism to the concept of a universe and of a universe of law. Instead, societies of men exist, each with its order and positive law, and each order of law lacks any absolute or universal validity. The law of Buddhist states is seen as valid for Buddhist nations, the law of Islam for Muslim states, the laws of pragmatism for humanistic states, and the laws of scripture for Christian states. But none, it is held, have the right to claim that their laws represent truth in any absolute sense. This, of course, militates against the biblical declaration that God's order is absolute and absolutely binding on men and nations. Even more, because an absolute law is denied, it means that the only universal law possible is an imperialistic law, a law imposed by force and having no validity other than the coercive imposition. Any one-world order on such a premise is of necessity imperialistic. Having denied absolute law, it cannot appeal to men to return to the true order from whence man has fallen. A relativistic, pragmatic law has no premise for missionary activity. The, quote, truth, unquote, it proclaims is no more valid than the, quote, truth, unquote, held by the people it seeks to unite to itself. If it holds, quote, we are better off one, unquote, it cannot justify the statement except by saying, quote, I hold it to be so, unquote to which the register can reply, quote, I hold that we are better off many, unquote. Under pragmatic law, it is held that every man is his own law system, because there is no absolute overarching law order. But this means anarchy. Thus, while pragmatism or relativism or existentialism, positivism, or any other form of this faith holds to the absolute immunity of the individual implicitly or explicitly, in effect, its only argument is the coercion of the individual, because it has no other bridge between man and man. 
It can speak of love, but there is no ground for calling love more valid than hate. Instead, the Marquis de Sade logically saw no crime in murder. On nominalistic, relativistic grounds, what could be wrong with murder? If there is no absolute law, then every man is his own law. As the writer of Judges declared, quote, In those days there was no king in Israel, i.e., the people had rejected God as king. Every man did which was right in his own eyes, unquote. Judges 22.25, CF 17.6, 18.1, The law forbids man's self-law. Quote, Ye shall not do after all the things that we do here this day. Every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes, unquote. Deuteronomy 12.8. And this applies to worship, as well as to moral order. The first principle of the Shema Israel is thus one God, one law. It is the declaration of an absolute moral order to which man must conform. If Israel cannot admit another God and another law order, it cannot recognize any other religion or law order as valid either for itself or for anyone else. Because God is one, truth is one. Other people will perish in their way, lest they turn and be converted. Psalms 2.12 The basic coercion is reserved to God. Because God is one, the truth is one. The one law has an inner coherence. The unity of the Godhead appears in the unity and coherence of the law. Instead of being strata of diverse origins and utility, the law of God is essentially one word, a unified whole. Modern political orders are polytheistic, imperial states, but the churches are not much better. To hold as churches do, Roman, Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Lutheran, Calvinist, and all others virtually, that the law was good for Israel, but that the Christians and the church are under grace and without law, or under some higher, newer law, is implicit polytheism. The Jacobite heresy has deeply infected the church. According to this heresy, the first age of man was the age of the father, the age of justice and the law. The second age was the age of the son, of Christianity, of the church, and of grace. The third age is the age of the spirit, when men become gods and their own law. Dispensationalism is also either evolutionary or polytheistic, or both. God changes or alters his ways with man, so that law is administered in one age and not in another. One age sees salvation by works, another by grace, and so on. But Scripture gives us a contrary assertion, quote, I am the Lord, I change not, unquote, Malachi 3.6. To attempt to pit law against grace is polytheistic, or at least Manichaean. It assumes two ultimate ways and powers in contradiction to one another. But the word of God is one word, and the law of God is one law because God is one. The word of God is a law word, and it is a grace word. The difference is in men, by virtue of God's election, not in God. The word blesses and it condemns in terms of our response to it. To pray for grace is also to pray for judgment, and it is to affirm the truth and the validity of the law and the justice of the law. The whole doctrine of Christ's atonement upholds the unity of law judgment, and grace. Every form of antinomianism has elements of polytheism in it. Of antinomians, Fairbairn wrote, quote, 
some so magnify grace in order to get their consciences at ease respecting the claims of holiness and vindicate for themselves a liberty to sin that grace may abound. Or which is even worse, to deny that anything they do can have the character of sin because they are, through grace, released from the demands of the law and so cannot sin. These are antinomians of the grosser kind who have not particular text merely of the Bible but its whole tenor and spirit against them. Others, however, and these the only representatives of the idea who can be regarded as having an outstanding existence, are advocates of holiness after the example and teaching of Christ. They are ready to say, quote, conformity to the divine will, and that as obedience to commandments, is alike the joy and the duty of the renewed mind. Some are afraid of the word obedience as it would weaken love and the idea of a new creation. Scripture is not. Obedience and keeping the commandments of one we love is the proof of that love and the delight of the new creature. Did I do all right and not do it in obedience? I should do nothing right because my true relationship and heart reference to God would be left out. This is love that we keep his commandments, unquote. Darby, quote, on the law, unquote, page three and four. So far excellent, but then these commandments are not found in the revelation of law, distinctively so called. The law it is held had a specific character and aim from which it cannot be disassociated and which makes it from all time the minister of evil. Quote, it is a principle of dealing with men which necessarily destroys and condemns them. This is the way, the writer continues, the Spirit of God uses law in contrast with Christ and never in Christian teaching puts men under it. Nor does Scripture ever think of saying, you are not under the law in one way, but you are in another. You are not for justification, but you are for the rule of life. It declares, you are not under law, but under grace. And if you are under law, you are condemned and under a curse. How is that obligatory which a man is not under, from which he has been delivered? Unquote. Antinomianism of this description, distinguishing between the teaching or commandments of Christ and the commandments of the law, holding the one to be binding on the conscience of Christians and the other not, is plainly but partially antinomianism. It does not indeed essentially differ from neonomianism, since law only as connected with the earlier dispensation is repudiated, while it is received as embodying the principles of Christian morality and associated with the life and the power of the Spirit of Christ. Unquote. One quote, evangelistic unquote, association given to campus work has actually taught that quote, the law was given by Satan, unquote, reported to this writer's daughter from a course taught on campus by a leader of this movement. Such a position can only be described as blasphemy. An example of this antinomianism from some unofficial Lutheran circles comes from a Sunday school manual. The Old Testament is treated, as in the New, as a book to be mined or searched out for, quote, truths, unquote, so that studies of various books are prefaced with a few summary statements entitled, quote, truths you will find in the book of Habakkuk, unquote, or, quote, truths you will find in the book of Matthew, unquote, and so on. Are we to assume the rest of the book is lies? In the, quote, introduction to the New Testament, unquote, 
we are told, quote, the New Testament is the presentation of life under grace as it differs from life under law, unquote. But the Old Testament also presents life under grace in both Old and New Testaments, present life under grace as life under law, never as lawlessness. The alternative to law is not grace. It is lawlessness. Grace and election move in terms of law and under law. Reprobation is anti-law and anti-grace. Is it the purpose of the churchmen to make the church's schools of reprobation? All this illustrates a second principle of the Shimmer Israel. One absolute unchanging God means one absolute unchanging law. Men's social applications and approximations of the righteousness of God may alter, vary, and waver, but the absolute law does not. To speak of the law as, quote, for Israel, unquote, but not for Christians, is not only to abandon the law, but also to abandon the God of the law. Since there is only one true God, and his law is the expression of his unchanging nature and righteousness, then to abandon the biblical law for another law system is to change gods. The moral collapse of Christendom is a product of this current process of changing gods. Barthianism, by asserting the, quote, freedom, unquote, of God to change, implying the evolving of an imperfect God, is asserting polytheism. Polytheism asserts many gods in many ways to salvation. It is not surprising that Karl Barth is at least implicitly universalistic. For Barth, all men can be or will be saved because there is no one absolute unchanging law which judges all men. In his polytheistic worldview, all men can find one of any number of roads to salvation, if indeed it is salvation they need. For Barth, salvation is more realistically to be seen as self-realization. It is the gnosis of election, the realization that all men are elect in Christ, i.e., free from an absolute God and an absolute decree and law. A third principle of the Shema Israel is that one God, one law, requires one total, unchanging, and unqualified obedience. Quote, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Unquote. Deuteronomy 6.5 The Talmud translates, quote, might, unquote, as, quote, money, unquote. The meaning is that man must obey God totally, in any and every condition, with all his being. Since man is totally the creature of God, and since there is not a fiber of his being which is not the handiwork of God, and therefore subject to the total law of God, there is not an area of man's life and being which can be held in reservation from God and his law. Therefore, as Deuteronomy 6.6 6 declares, quote, And these words, which I command thee this day, shall be in thine heart. Unquote. Luther's comment on this verse is of interest in that it contained the seeds of antinomianism which later became so deeply rooted in Lutheranism. Quote, he, Moses, wants you to know that the first commandment is the measure and yardstick of all others, to which they are to yield and give obedience. Therefore, if it is for the sake of faith and charity, you may kill, in violation of the fifth commandment, just as Abraham killed the kings, Genesis 14:15, and King Ahab 
sinned because he did not kill the king of Syria. 1 Kings 20.34 Similar is the case of theft, ambush, and trickery against the enemies of God. You may take spoils, goods, wives, daughters, sons, and servants of enemies. So you should hate father and mother, that you may love the Lord your God. Luke 14.26 In short, where anything will be against faith and love, they shall not know that anything else is commanded by either God or man. Where it is for faith and love, however, you shall know that everything is commanded in all cases and everywhere. For the statement stands, quote, These words shall be in your heart, unquote. There they shall rule. Furthermore, unless they are also in the heart, certainly no one will understand or follow this epikia or ever employ law successfully, safely, or legally. Therefore, Paul says also in 1 Timothy 1.9 that, quote, The law is not set up for the righteous, unquote, for the reason that the fulfilling of the law is love from a good heart and from faith that is not feigned, 1 Timothy 1.5, which uses law lawfully when it has no laws and has all laws, no laws, because none bind unless they serve faith and love, all, because all bind when they serve faith and love. Therefore, this is Moses' meaning there. If you desire to understand the first commandment correctly, and truly, not to have other gods, act so that you believe and love one God, deny yourself, receive everything by grace, and do everything gratefully. Unquote. The confusions of the statement could only beget confusion. A fourth principle which follows from the Shema Israel is stated in Deuteronomy 6, 7-9, Education in the law is basic to and inseparable from both obedience to the law and from worship. The law requires education in terms of the law. Anything other than a biblically grounded schooling is thus an act of apostasy for a believer. It involves having another God and bowing down before Him to learn from Him. There can be no true worship without true education, because the law prescribes and is absolute, and no man can approach God in contempt of God's prescription. From Deuteronomy 6.8, Israel derived the use of the tefillion, the portions of the law bound upon the head or arm at prayer. Of 6.8.9, it has been observed, quote, As these words are figurative, and denote an undeviating observance of the divine commands, so also the commandment which follows, viz., to write the words upon the doorposts of the house, and also upon the gates, are to be understood spiritually, and the literal fulfillment of such a command could only be praiseworthy custom, or well-pleasing to God, when resorted to as the means of keeping the commandments of God constantly before the eye. The precept itself, however, presupposes the existence of this custom, which is not only met with the Mohitan countries of Egypt, at the present day, but also with a common custom in ancient Egypt." Unquote. What is required, certainly, is that the mind in action, family and home, man's vision and man's work, be all viewed in the perspective of God's lawward. But this is not all. The literal fulfillment of the command concerning the frontlets and the post, Deuteronomy 6, 8, and 9, is clearly required, as Numbers 15, 37 through 41, CF Deuteronomy 11, 18-20 makes clear. The blue thread required cannot be spiritualized away. God requires that he be worshipped according to his own word. 
Calvin's comment here on Numbers 15.38 was to the point, quote, And first of all, by contrasting, quote, the hearts and eyes, unquote, of men with his law, he shows that he would have his people contented with the one rule which he prescribes, without the admixture of any of their own imaginations. And again, he denounces the vanity of whatever men invent for themselves, and however pleasing any human scheme may appear to them, he still repudiates and condemns it. And this is still more clearly expressed in the last word, when he says that men, quote, go a-whoring, unquote, whenever they are governed by their own counsels. This declaration is deserving of our special observation, for whilst they have much self-satisfaction who worship God according to their own will, and whilst they account their zeal to be very good and very right, they do nothing else but populate themselves by spiritual adultery. For what by the world is considered to be the holiest devotion, God with his own mouth pronounces to be fornication. By the word, quote, eyes, unquote, he questionably means man's power of discernment, unquote. It is regrettable that Calvin mars this by calling it a, quote, need of these coarse rudiments, unquote. Our Lord fulfilled this law, and a woman touched a fringe of his hem of his garment to be healed, Matthew 9, 20. Jesus criticized the Pharisees for making large their fringes, Matthew 23, 5, to boast of their ostensibly large loyalty to the law. The commandment is repeated in Deuteronomy 22.12, so as to make clear its importance. Men dress in diverse and strange ways to conform to the world and to its styles. What is so difficult or, quote, coarse, unquote, about any conformity to God's law or any mode God specifies? There is nothing difficult or strange about this law, nor anything absurd or impossible. It is not observed by Christians because it was, like circumcision, the Sabbath, and other aspects of the Mosaic form of the covenant, superseded by new signs of the covenant as renewed by Christ. The law of the covenant remains. The covenant rites and signs have been changed. But the forms of the covenant signs are no less honorable, profound, and beautiful in the Mosaic form than in the Christian form. The change does not represent an evolutionary advance or a higher or lower relationship. The covenant was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but God did not treat Moses, David, Isaiah, Hezekiah, or any of his Old Testament covenant people as lesser in his sight or more childish in ability and hence in need of, quote, coarse rudiments, unquote. In every age, the covenant is all holy and wise. In every age, the people of the covenant stand in terms of grace, not because of a, quote, higher, unquote, personal ability or maturity. Worship in unknown tongue, 1 Corinthians 14, is a violation of this commandment, as is worship which lacks the faithful proclamation of God's word, or is without the education of the people of the covenant in terms of the covenant law word. A fifth principle, which is also proclaimed in this passage in Deuteronomy 6, 20-25, is that in this required education, it must be stressed that the response to grace is the keeping of the law. Children are to be taught that the meaning of the law is that God redeemed Israel out of bondage and, quote, that he might preserve us alive, unquote, quote, commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, unquote, 
6.24. There is no warrant for setting this aside in either the Old or New Testament. Where the churches of the Old or New Testaments have set up a false meaning to the law, that false meaning is attacked by prophets and apostles, but never the law of God itself. Because God is one, His grace and law are one in their purpose and direction. This passage makes pointedly clear the priority of God's electing grace in the call and redemption of His chosen people. The relationship of Israel was a relationship of grace, and the law was given in order to provide God's people with a necessary and required response to grace and manifestation of grace, the keeping of the law. In Deuteronomy 6, 10-15, another central point is made with respect to the implications of the Shema Israel. Quote, And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land which he swore unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities, which thou didst not build, and houses full of good things, which thou didst not fill, and cisterns hewn out, which thou didst not hew, vineyards and olive trees, which thou did not plant, and thou shalt eat and be satisfied. Then beware, lest thou forget the Lord, who brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and him shalt thou serve, and by his name shalt thou swear. Ye shall not go after other gods, of the gods of the people that are round about you. For a jealous God, even the Lord thy God, is in the midst of thee, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee, and he destroy thee from off the face of the earth. Unquote. Thus the sixth principle is the jealousy of God. This is a fact of cardinal importance. The chosen people are warned, as they occupy and possess a rich land which they did not develop, lest they forget God who delivered and prospered them. Seeing the wealth which came from a culture hostile to God, God's covenant people will be tempted to see other means to success and prosperity than the Lord. The temptation will be to, quote, go after other gods, the gods of the people round about, unquote. This is to believe that there is another law order than God's law order. It is to forget that the success and destruction of the Canaanites was alike the work of God. It is the provocation of God's wrath and jealousy. The fact that jealousy is associated repeatedly with the law and invoked by God in the giving of the law, is of cardinal importance in understanding the law. The law of God is not a blind, impersonal, and mechanical operative force. It is neither karma nor fate. The law of God is the law of the absolute and total personal creator whose law operates within the context of his love and hate, his grace towards his people, and his wrath towards his enemies. A current of electricity is impersonal, it flows in its specified energy when the conditions for a flow or discharge of an energy are met. Otherwise, it does not flow. But the law of God is not so. It is personal. God restrains his wrath in patience and grace, or he destroys his enemies with an overrunning flood of judgment. Nehemiah 1.8 From a humanistic and impersonalistic perspective, both the mercy of God to Assyria... Jonah 3, 1 through 4 through 3, and the judgment of God on Assyria, Nehemiah 1, 1 through 3 through 9, seem disproportionate because an impersonal law is also an external law. It knows only action, not the heart. 
Man, as he applies the law of God, must judge the actions of man. But God, being absolute, judges the total man with total judgment. The jealousy of God is therefore the certain assurance of the infallibility of God's court of law. The evil which so easily escapes the courts of state cannot escape the judgment of God, which, both in time as well as beyond time, moves in terms of the total requirement of his law. The jealousy of God is the guarantee of justice. An impersonal justice in a world of persons means that evil, being personal, can escape the net of the law and reign in laughing triumph. But the jealous God prevents the triumph either of Canaan or an apostate Israel or church. Without a jealous personal God, no justice is possible. The doctrine of karma only enthrones injustice. It leads to the most vicious and callous kind of externalism and impersonalism. The people of karma spare their monkeys but destroy one another. Karma knows no grace because karma in essence knows no persons, only actions and consequences. The escape from karma becomes nirvana, the escape from life. This passage declares, quote, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and him shalt thou serve, and by his name shalt thou swear, unquote, Deuteronomy 6.13. Luther's comment here is excellent. Quote, Therefore you swear by the name of God, if you relate that by which you swear to God, and grasp is the name of God. Otherwise, you would not swear if you knew it displeased him. Similarly, you would serve God alone when you serve men in the name of God. Otherwise, you would not serve. By such swearing, you safeguard your service to God alone and are not drawn toward a godless work or oath. Thus Christ also says in Matthew 23, 16-22, that he who swears by the temple and altar in heaven swears by God. And in Matthew 5, 35-36, he forbids to swear by Jerusalem, by one's head, by heaven, or by anything else, because in all these one swears by God. But to swear by God frivolously and emptily is to take the name of God in vain. When, therefore, he desires oaths to be made by the name of God and no other, the reason is not only this, but for the truth, which is God, the confirmation of no one should be introduced except that of God himself. But also this, that man should remain in the service of God alone, learn to relate everything to him, and to do, possess, use, and endure all in his name. Otherwise, if they employ another name, they would be diverted and become used to swearing as if it had nothing to do with God. And finally, through bad usage, they would begin to distinguish between the deeds by which God is served and those by which he is not served, when he wants to be served in and wants all things to be done in fear, because he is present to see and judge. Therefore the oath is to be used in the same way as the sword and sexual intercourse are to be used. It is forbidden to take the sword, as Christ says, Matthew 26, 52, quote, He who takes the sword shall perish by the sword, unquote, because he takes it without a command and because of his own lusts. But it is a command and a divine service to bear the sword if this is assigned by God or through man. For then it is born in the name of the Lord, for the good of the neighbor, as Paul says, quote, He is the servant of God 
for your good, unquote. Romans 13.4 Thus the fleshly use of sex is forbidden, because it is disorderly lust. Where, however, sex is associated with you by marriage, then the flesh should be used, and you render to the divine law, that is, to love what is demanded. In the same way one should make use of an oath, you should not swear for your own sake, but for the sake of God or your neighbor in the name of the Lord. Thus you will always remain in the service of God alone. Unquote. In the temptation of Jesus, two of the three answers to Satan are from Deuteronomy 6. Quote, it is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Unquote. Matthew 4, 7, Deuteronomy 6, 16. And, quote, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Unquote. Matthew 4, 10, Deuteronomy 6, 13, 10, 20. The third answer is taken from a related passage, Deuteronomy 8.3. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. Unquote. Matthew 4.4. 4. All three answers were responses to the temptation to test God, implicit to which was not merely questioning, but actually challenging God and his word. A seventh principle which follows from the Shema Israel is declared in Deuteronomy 6. 16 through 9, quote, Ye shall not try the Lord your God, as ye tried him in Massa. Ye shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and his testimonies, and his statutes, which he had commanded thee, and thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore unto thy fathers, to thrust out all thine enemies from before thee, as the Lord hath spoken. Unquote. It was this that Satan tried to tempt Jesus to do, to try God, to put God to the test. Israel tempted God at Massa by raising the question, quote, Is the Lord among us or not? Unquote. Exodus 17, 7. Quote, the worship of Jehovah not only precludes all idolatry, which the Lord, as a jealous God, will not endure, but will punish with destruction from the earth. But it also excludes tempting the Lord by an unbelieving murmuring against God, if he does not remove any kind of distress immediately, as the people had already sinned at Massa, i.e. at Rephraim. The seventh principle thus forbids the unbelieving testing of God. God's law is the testing of man. Therefore man cannot presume to be God and put God and his law word on trial. Such a step is a supreme arrogance and blasphemy. It is the opposite of obedience, because it is the essence of disobedience to the law. Hence it is contrasted to a diligent keeping of the law. This obedience is the condition of blessing, it is the ground of conquest and of possession, in terms of which the covenant people of God, his law people, enter into their inheritance. Tempting or trying God has other implications, according to Luther. Quote, the first way is not to use the necessary things that are at hand but to seek others, which are not at hand. So he tempts God who snores and does not want to work, taking for granted that he must be sustained by God without work, although God has promised to provide him through his work. As Proverbs 10.4 says, quote, The hands of the busy prepare wealth, but the slack hand will hunger. Unquote. This vulgar celibacy is like that too. Secondly, God is tempted when nothing needed is at hand except the bare and alone word of God. 
For here, the godless are not content with the word, unless God does what he promised at the time, in the place, and in the manner prescribed by themselves. They give up and do not believe. But to prescribe place, time, or manner to God is actually to tempt him and to fill about, as it were, whether he is there. But this is nothing else than to want to put limits on God and to subject him to our will. In fact, to deprive him of his divinity. He should be free, not subject to bounds and limitations, and to be one who prescribes places, means, and time to us. Therefore, both temptations are against the first commandment. Unquote. The neglect of the Shema Israel and Deuteronomy 6 has been part and parcel of the neglect of the law.